0: from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC
1: Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Book Chats showcase Berkeley faculty authors engaged in public conversation about their own recently completed books. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Beth Piatote of the Ethnic Studies Department discussing her 2019 book, The Bead Workers, Stories. She is joined by Kathleen Donegan of the English Department.
0: Thank you. Well, I feel so fortunate to be here talking about Beth Piatote's work. It is It is the kind of book that... You read it and you immediately buy it for someone else. You <laughs> say, like, I need to talk to people I love about this work that I'm loving, and so um, so my family is also reading oh, thank your book. You. Donegan uh, clan. It is the Donegan <laughs> The Donigan clan is reading is reading the bead workers. Um, it's also the kind of book that you you come away with very kind of intense and intimate, specific, vivid images in your mind and kind of characters and moments and stories that you can't forget, but you also, you know, very, you know, ingrained, but then you also come away with these big ideas. You know, it's a very smart book. It's a very challenging book in that way. You come away with great big ideas about time and history and language and stories um, and what to do. so I thought that we could talk about both those big ideas and get at it through um, the stories as you do so beautifully in, in the Thank work. You so, much. So, um, so there's a lot, but we're also going to leave time uh, to talk uh, as a group at the end. And also I want to be able to read little pieces to get you um, to, to hear the voice of this work. So I hope that we can do all of that. So I want to start off with um, how the book begins. It begins with um, a section called Feasts. And there are three feasts. And the first feast um, is a poem. And it's a poem about being born. Um, being born as in um, giving birth, you know, uh, being birthed. And also being born with an E as in being born along, being carried along. And it features really prominently several words in the Nez Perce language. Um, and then feast two takes those words and uses them as kind of um, topical headings, um, they're untranslated, but then the story or the piece, it's either a prose poem or a small tale or um, a, a, a series of you know, beautifully edited facts um, that follow <laughs> these headings, do the work in a kind of sideways way of translating what that uh, key word is. Um, I'll just read you a little one of them. This is... Um, this starts off, the animals help us. And, and tell, me, tell me this word. We'll okay. So it starts off, the animals help us. Uh, the animals help us. We know this from the old stories, from family stories, from court stories. I know a story that's happening right now about a man who called on an elk to help him. And the elk came to his aid. And now the man is in court. But listen, this is a good story. You see, the man is cynics from north of here. Many years ago, the cynics people were suffering from smallpox. They were weakened, and the Canadian ministers and settlers hunted those people down, drove them out of their homeland. The survivors came to us for refuge. We took them in, and now they're strong again. Here, we call them the lakes people, but they never stopped wanting to go back, or going back, in fact, to visit their homelands and hunt. Canada, in the meantime, decided the Cynics were extinct and extinguished their rights. But the Cynics people are alive, and so are their rights. A few years ago, one of these unextinct Cynics men killed an elk in his homelands. Then he called the game officials in Canada and turned himself in. They took the bait. When the province pressed the charges against him for taking big game without a license, he pleaded not guilty. He cited his aboriginal rights to hunt in his own territory. And now that case is in court. And Canada will have to look at that man standing in the middle of the room and all his people around him. And Canada will have to admit that the cynics are not extinct. The cynics man is very brave. And so is the elk, who gave himself. That man and that elk knew each other from long ago. They met in dreams and sweat, blood, and forest. The man needed the elk. The people need the elk. Without the elk, there would be no case, no path home, no court for the man to present himself to the state and say, we are alive. That, that's one page. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it goes. And it's so beautiful how you know, Beth says, now I'm going to tell you a story. And you and and there's that moment where you sit and receive, you know, and those are the kind of stories you receive. So that's all in Feast Two, and then Feast Three is a longer story, a very kind of gentle story about a woman named May who is in mourning for her husband. Her husband died suddenly and mysteriously. May says she thinks she should wear a scarlet letter, that is just a question mark, because that's how she walks around with the question. Um, And in the end of that story, a crow tells her to look up. And she looks up. And she looks up at the sky. And she looks up at the mountains. And she looks up at the valley. And she looks up at the river. And that river is the river that started Feast One. That's the water that we're born into. So it's this brilliant way of beginning. It's a very... it's, it's a very daring way that you're using all of these different voices, a poetic voice and a, and a storyteller's voice, and then a voice of a kind of personal fiction. And I was thinking, you know, Feast is a gathering and an offering and a place to share. So in thinking about, st- in making the decision to start the book mm-hmm. that way, what did you want to gather, mm-hmm. and what did you want people to share in that opening?
2: Um, well, first of all, thank you, Kathleen, for that amazing um, analysis and for sharing that. I couldn't ask for a more generous, brilliant reader. Um, so that decision about the feast... So. I was influenced, well first I should say, this book I wrote like always on the side because my day job was being a professor. (laughs) And so I I was always working on these stories and I just kind of worked on each one as it came to me. And each one was a little puzzle, each one has a little sort of challenge I gave myself. Oh, what if you did this? What would, you know, and I tried to also, because I was studying Nez Perce language, also bring in aesthetics that are in Nez Perce literature. And so that also influenced different pieces And one of the reasons I took that turn in my creative writing was because I was influenced by the Maori poet um, Robert Sullivan. And I brought him here to do a creative writing workshop with our graduate students years ago. And he said, we should be using our indigenous aesthetics in our writing. And so I thought, I wonder what that means. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I could structure a set of pieces based on the feast. And so our feast is uh, always, we, we have multiple feasts over the course of a year. And um, there's a very specific way in which the food is laid out on the table. And it has to do, it always begins and ends with kus, with water. And then um, after that, it's the order in which the animals presented themselves to humans. Um, and then it's the order in which the um roots and berries appear on the landscape. And other Columbia River tribes have a similar sort of longhouse feast, but sometimes their roots are in different order because they're in a different place in relationship to the sun. So it's a very, everything about the feast is just very um, grounded in that very specific um, geography and in these very sort of very long time practices. So we're still doing the feasts like three, four times a year. just as it has always been. Um, And so that's where I wanted to start. And and it was a big risk because not everybody just wants to get thrown into an unfamiliar language, an unfamiliar structure, um, an unfamiliar landscape. And there were, you know, I mean, the book got rejected a few times because people were just like, Mm. it's too alienating at the beginning. Um, But I wanted to write something that would be recognizable to my people, first of all and to other indigenous people, and then just to people who would be open to just going somewhere. And I really had to trust the structure. I'm like, I believe in the structure of the feast as a yeah, super yeah. durable structure. And I think it could survive a poem. <laughs> I, think it could, I could think it could still work as a, you know, sort of whatever that second thing is. And then um, also, so at my, I made this triptych because I wanted these dimensions of time to be mm-hmm. you know, working through. So you see sort of all these different dimensions of time, especially in the second piece. And in the first piece, the poem is trying to imitate um, aspects of the feast. There's the, the the, words kind of tumble on top of each mm-hmm. other, and there's a lot of confusion between first and second person. Um, and this is also part of the relationship that we have to Wawukia and Emes and um, on all of those beings that construct us in relationship to mm-hmm. our place that co-construction of um, p- human people with animal people and plants and um, water um, so the third piece this just kind of like straightforward short story um, all of the all of the feast foods appear in the story some of them in English but they appear in sort of broad categories to the story. So it starts and ends with water, and then you, know, you see salmon and uh, venison and, wow. and roots and berries. So the, the, the essential order of the universe stays the same even though the genre changes. That's and that so was sort wonderful. of the experiment and sort of the fluidity of time in which you're sort of the second piece I think of as generally set in the present. In a way that the past is always refracting through it. So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, yeah, that's that.
0: Well, I love your like what you're talking about about um, you know time and form and durability and being in the midst of those things, whether or not you know it. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not know right. that you're at the feast mm-hmm. when you read the story of May, but you are, mm-hmm. and that's why it feels right. Mm-hmm. that story, mm-hmm. because you are at the feast, whether or not you you know that you're there. So kind of bringing your reader in is also a way of saying that you're opening a world up to your reader that is already mm-hmm. there, that is a durable thing. You right.
2: know. yeah, and I resisted writing any kind of introduction or explanation yeah. of it, um, because I really have, have tremendous faith in readers to either to trust that structure too Mm -hmm. and to feel comfortable with like, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, first of all, there are readers who are exactly sure what it is. You know, like other plateau Mm -hmm. people are going to pick that up and go, I know exactly what this is. You know, um, but others might, and I kind of appreciate that as a reader. Like, I can, sometimes when I can tell a writer's doing something, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I really, like, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to do that. And I tried to make it, I, so I tried to make it a feast, tried to make it as inviting as possible. Yeah. I didn't mean, I didn't want to alienate people, but I wanted to keep my people at the center. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, I, that's what I did.
0: <laughs> i um, ask you more a little bit about um, the Nez Perce language and the role of Nez Perce in, mm-hmm. the, in the, um, so the, the stories. Um, the third part of the book, I'm going to ask you to, to uh, read another word. Um, the third part of the book is titled this. What is this word?
2: Enačiakta.
0: Okay. So, so it's here, it's, it's on the title, and then Beth translates it um, in three ways. I tell my story. I conjure my powers, I make a wish. And there's another point in the play, Antigone, where um, Antigone uses a Nez Perce word, and in the footnote it says, I worry. And, and then it further says, this literally means, I think in my heart. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which which means so much more than I worry, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm kind of wondering and bringing Nez Perce language in and your kind of poetics as a translator, mm-hmm. that as a translator, you're not trying to make um, kind of simple, uh, unified correspondences. And in doing so, I think there is, as I say, a kind of poetics, which is to say, you're maintaining the poetry of that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what, what do we learn about the Nez Perce language or Nez Perce ways of thinking mm-hmm. when we know that a word means, Mm -hmm. I tell my story, I conjure my powers, Mm -hmm. and I make a wish, that those three meanings that are very different Mm -hmm. in English Mm -hmm. are all layered on top of each other and kind of imprecated within one another. What are we learning about the, the Nez Perce language at that moment? that everyone should be studying the Nez Perce <laughs> like it, it, If you
2: want to expand your mind, study an indigenous language. You know, I mean, we all know every language that we take on expands our minds and expands our ability to think about things. So some of the elements of Nez Perce is it's a polysynthetic language. So it has a verb in the middle and the front of the word is the who and the how and the end of the word is the when and the where. Um, but so you can, have these constructions that have a core verb, and then you can switch out like any of these little pieces, and you can see relationships between concepts and hold things in a very different way. Um, but we also have like different time. Uh, time markers temporal markers so we have you know verb endings for long ago time and in the old stories you see the storytellers are moving back and forth between remote time and present time all the time and there are certain sonic elements that that will move the the story from remote time into the present and so like that way of thinking and also all the directionals, like the story itself has a location as it's unfolding. There are all these kinds of time and place markers in the language that are hard to bring back into English. Um, I think the piece that I, I mean, I, it's all through the book, the use of the language. And and I couldn't translate the pieces in, fe- the, the names for the um, foods in feast because, They have never been translated, and in fact, that is kind of the experience of going to a feast. They'll call out all the feast words. Everything else can be in English, but those feast words never change. Mm. And those, all the old songs, those are still being sung in the old language. So there's this. I wanted to assert this stability of the language, even when it's surrounded by English. It's still that true compass and that true sort of. That's the language of the land, and so the plants and animals are also speaking that language um, of our place. Yeah. Um, so the, the the piece that I most consciously played with the language was um, Falling Crows, that comes toward the end, and as I was telling you, it was the last piece that I wrote in the whole thing. Um, and I tried to, in English, imitate the ways that, to a certain degree, the ways that stories appear. So because the, the language is polysynthetic, you can have a short word that's an entire sentence. So if I say the word I think it's like seven letters or something, the translation of that is he or she was saying to him or her as they were going along, coming in this direction. Like All of that information mm-hmm. is in that one word. So when you're reading a story, you see a series of words with small particles. At, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so words are sentences. And so, in Following Crows, I tried to imitate some of that style by having these very sort of short sentences, he wanted a drink, he didn't want a drink, these kinds of trying to catch the rhythm and sort of the structure of Mm -hmm. the language in that. Um, And then that piece was also inspired, sort of my puzzle for that one was, in Nez Perce's stories, sometimes there's this... um, this element of um, the Lai And in Asper stories, the Lai is the littlest one. Um, another way to say this is um, your thumb is Takas, the old one, and your pinky is uh, Lai the little one. They're always together. Mm. Um, the Lai is always the hero in the story. And so I thought, well, I just want to write a contemporary story where the Lai is the hero.
0: So, that was <laughs> not that story. So, do you feel like a lot of your um, characters, and this kind of opens up to a conversation about tribe that I want to have, mm-hmm. um, but but as a kind of segue to that, that a lot of your characters are living these kind of modern Native American lives and have a have a um, very complex relationship mm-hmm. to tribe, to language, to return. Return is such an important theme, mm-hmm. um, but it but it isn't necessarily an embrace. It isn't a discovery. It's there, but still needs to be discovered in some way. Do you think of these characters in any way as kind of living in translation, mm-hmm. kind of living in mm-hmm. another language system mm-hmm. that that either does or does not or can or cannot translate for themselves as well as mm-hmm. for others? Yeah,
2: I think that's absolutely true. And you know, before we started talking, you were talking about the scene at the end of that story, where the two figures are, the two characters are both listening to these old tapes, and the younger one says, ha oh, ha, isn't that grizzly bear?" And then the other one said, "Yeah, the story's about this, right?" So you have these two parts of the language that, when you bring them together, then they sort of make something larger um, mm-hmm. in sort of that that reclamation process, and uh, that that actually is. Well, I'm not going to ruin the story for you. <laughs> I'll just say yeah. that back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back well, just, I kind of And then, yes, if you happen to read the story, you can
0: have your own interpretation of that right. moment. Right. <laughs> to, to his themes. Well, thinking about kind of tribe and how tribe happens, you know, there are um, there are a lot of orphans mm-hmm. in these stories. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of fosters. Uncles and aunts. Uncles, aunts, different kind of kin, mm-hmm. you know. There are um, um, tribes, as we read in the um, elk story and the animals help us, that are terminated or extinct and then people are have to kind of show that they're unextinct, perform their lives as unextinct. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of return. There's one character, this wonderful character, who's this artist and um, she's making a board game, an Indian board game called Windian, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a piece of kind of satirical art, but also political art, and, all, and it's like a kind of monopoly game, and all the rules of this game are really hilarious, but there's like one rule that if you land on something called um, intertribal friendship, you know, and thinking about tribe, intertribal friendship, you can either stay there and like skip your next turn because you want to stay there so much. Or you can immediately roll again. Yeah. And like, <laughs> it's oh, like, get, get the hell out, out of there. <laughs> it's like, like that's just, get out of Dodge, you know? <laughs> and so, um, but then there's this, you know, accelerate forward movement. So there's this desire to accelerate forward movement, but then a deep pull of return at the same time. And uh, there's a line in the Antigone play um, that says, in India, just straight out says an indian is no one without the tribe. So having written that, I want to know <laughs> if you agree with that, what parts of you do, what parts of you don't and, you know, having, you know, I want to hear you in dialogue with that idea of an indian is no one without the tribe and how that claim holds in modern native american life. Well, that's an easy question. It's a little one. <laughs>
2: Um, I mean, the context of that quotation is this sort of reimagining of the play um, *Antigone*. Which, w- when I talked to you about it, mm-hmm. you said, "Oh, everyone needs to read." So here's another recommendation: Everyone should be reading Sophocles right mm-hmm. now. and <laughs> been thinking about the Trump administration. Yeah, um, and I think that it it, it actually is <laughs> this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the rewriting of um, Ant- *Antigone* as *Antigone*. Um, we have the chorus replaced by a chorus of aunties who tell stories. And one of the, uh, sort of the general genre of stories that these aunties tell, um, in these stories, if you look back at them, they're all traditional Nez stories. There's always a tipping point. And so I, in these traditional stories, and then in the stage action, there's a tipping point. When is is someone going to go from uh, kind of a corrupt person to... A cannibal, just to put a fine point on it. Because mm-hmm. there are cannibal stories and stories of captivity and things like this, and there's always a tipping point, and you have to read that against the action on the play of like, what's the tipping point with this character? Like, when are they going to lose their ethics? And so, that claim um, that an Indian is no one without, and the character's saying it to Creon, so, but without his tribe, right, without the tribe, um, is part of that sort of trying to regulate against excess and against like cutting yourself mm-hmm. off entirely. Um, so that's, I mean, I guess that's sort of like, just trying to reconstruct like where that's
0: yeah. coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That yeah. tipping point. So, um, right, the tipping point. Sometimes it seems to me like there's a tipping point around the decision to return. A lot of people are, are returning in the stories and this feeling of like it is time now to return and what do I seek when I return and what do I find when I return. There's a woman in a story called Rootless and she's on a bus and um, she reflects this. I was returning home from root feast on the rez or maybe I was returning to exile, taking my roots with me. It doesn't seem right that one should be returning on both ends of a journey, but that's how it felt, right? So it's like each way is a return. Mm-hmm. But that, so there's this kind of like very uncanny moment where she's like, where is my place to which I return? Where is the place to which I arrive? You know? Um, then there's this kind of full-blown there are lots of full-blown stories about return. I just want to read you one. Um, this is about, it's a story that's told in in a, a story within a story that's told within the story called Katie Dids. And um, two girls can't go to sleep so one tells the other a story. Um, and it's a story about a husband and wife who go on a camping trip, and they bring the wife's mother. And they set up camp, and the wife said, whatever you do, don't mention the Katydids." So guess what happens? <laughs> the husband at one point says, Katie are loud tonight. And this is what ensues. Um, the katydids are very loud tonight. And his mother-in-law heard him. She jumped up. From where she was, and threw a blanket around her shoulders like a cape. She began to run in circles and to sing. She wanted to join the katydids. No matter what the wife said, the mother couldn't hear her. She only sang louder. The wife was upset. Look what you've done, she said to her husband. I told you not to mention the katydids. My mother is a katydid, and now she wants to fly away with them. The mother sang and sang and sang. There was nothing the husband and wife could do. The woman longed to return to the katydids, and she couldn't stop singing. She sang and sang and sang until she sang herself to death. That's all. And then one girl says to the other, "That's a good story." Ada said, "Yes, I said, but it's too short for a long night." <laughs> so, um, so this this idea about return. You know, later on, a man says, "We are salmon people." I said to myself, "We always circle back." Mm-hmm. So, what? Why is return so central to the project of the book? Because it's really in every story, there's a moment of return. Yeah.
2: I guess it's, it just showed up in there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I was thinking about certain Like I was thinking, oh well, beadwork is the theme. Like there's theme that's, and beadwork itself is also like the drawing out and the tightening back. Right? Mm, the, yeah, yeah, like yeah. laying down each bead is like, this is what the auntie is doing when the story is, you know, she's like, going out and bringing it tight. She's like, you remember my hands like this, Yep. Like this is constant drawing out and bringing tight, you know? And I Hmm. think of this as Mm -hmm. like, well, this is just the ways that Native communities like breathe is this expansion and always drawing back. Hmm. And so that drawing back is the thread that keeps pulling people back down. And, you know, I think all of my work is sort of driven by the question, like, how do people survive? How are people surviving this? And it's this. So, I what, uh, an aspect of it is this return, but mm. it's the it's the uh, I just
0: think of yeah. it as the it's a whole different threat. way of thinking of it than the way that I was proposing, because you're talking about a, a breathing instead of a conflict. You know, like you either go or you come back, mm-hmm. and once you come back, you should stay or go forth mm-hmm. in a different way. But this kind of like expansion and pulling back, like like beads, like stories, like language. Um, is a really thank you. That's a really different way of of thinking about it, as opposed to a conflict between like individual and tribe, mm-hmm. modern and ancient, yeah. here and there. You know, which which makes me think of another. Um, oh, look, we're it's at almost th- time. It is, <laughs> in <laughs> fact, it is time. We can talk about so many things, yeah, but um, let's hear what you have on your mind. So, um, thank so, you so much for being such a wonderful room to yeah. spend time. with. So anyone who wants to pop in with a with a question or a thought or um, or any reflection, yeah.
1: Um, so I have a question. Well, I have a bunch of questions actually. But one is just could you talk more about the the phrase the the word beadwork, which seems to suggest both something done and something that is in the process of being done.
2: Mm-hmm. The beadwork is. So beadwork became a theme in this for a lot of different reasons, and one is my auntie was a master beadworker, and I remember watching her bead and how she would pick these, she would make these choices, Um, and I would think, wow, I don't have that thing that she has, but I think I can do that with writing, and I started thinking there was an association between beadwork and writing, Mm -hmm. just like you're just laying things down one at a time, and also then the, the sort of formal properties of the, the stories. I think if you look at the book, you'll see like every piece has a different shape yeah. um, and different structure. And I think of like beadwork the same way. Like you can have the same sort of technique, but working out different forms and, and like just trusting the patterns to emerge. Um, and then <coughs> I also at my my experience of writing the book. You know, as I was thinking, I was thinking about my readers being like other Indian people who would really like like these stories. And so I kind of would. I I imagine myself at at a beadwork table, listening to sharing these stories, and so that's the kind of space I tried to create in the book itself. Is like we're all in here. Sh- we come into this space with all of our pain, and we tell stories and laugh and sort of glue things together for them. And then I think maybe the most important theme about beadwork that is also going through is beading as prayer. <coughs> to bead is to pray, and that there's you know, these two currents working together, both the the creation of art, the recreation, the creativity of indigenous people against everything against them to still make art. Like if people want to know like how to survive the apocalypse, it is to make art and to be with your kin and to pray. Like that's what Indian people have been doing. Like those three things I can say for sure, (laughs) like those, I have been sort of core survival parts, and they're all kind of bound up in this concept of beadwork. But you know, there are many other indigenous arts I could have chosen that would also have some of these same elements. But yeah, beadwork has a lot of dimensions. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. Also, the cover is beadwork, in case anyone wants to <laughs> need to look close. This is by the beadwork artist um, Marcus Ammerman. And it is an image of um, Mount Hood in Portland. And superimposed is a photograph of Nez Perce from 1902. And so he made the collage. And I love that those two images are, exist on the same plane and have these interpenetrating spatial meanings. And also, the best of all, that it is beadwork of beadwork. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like there are stories within stories. And, so. mm-hmm. and lots of sky. That's also very important. And Portland Art Museum owns the original. If you ever want to see it, which is truly stunning. How big is it? It's not that big because you know. Yeah, I mean it's is, very intricate. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a Mona Lisa, kind of like oh,
0: it's like mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Chai, where are you? Okay, so I love how you're talking about preoccupations as a writer. One of my preoccupations is with risk and taking risk. So I'm going to ask you, um, <laughs> what felt risky, or what a moment or a story or something that felt risky in putting this book together?
2: you know i actually had kind of the opposite experience until after it was done and i'll tell you why it's because i was always like working on it on my on the side i was always doing these experiments only for myself and i just thought once i have enough pages i'll take it somewhere and it will go out somewhere so it wasn't until like i put them all together and then i was like no one's going to read this book right like everything nothing matches there's no you know and for about a year, I did get rejected by agents and publishers who were just like, what is it? You know? um, and that's when I realized, oh, I had an experience of like, pure artistic freedom. Um, like, I w- I, like I was taking all of these risks, but I didn't know it because I there was nobody waiting for the book, right? I had no agent, I had no publisher, I had no readers. I was just there by myself, you know, laughing and like, oh, what would happen if I did this? And you know, like each one was a little thing, and I'd finish it and I'd send it to my friends, and they'd say, oh, I like this, and you yeah, know, tuck it away and work on the next one. You know, like it was so. I was taking these huge risks, and I didn't realize it until I tried to sell the book. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a huge risk. And so people have been to me like, wow, you're so brave. And I was like, let me tell you my secret. (laughs) Have no readers. Yeah, exactly. have have no, at all, don't think about the book as an actual thing (laughs) until it's done. So um, does that answer your question? I did experience risk then at that point. And the risk was, am I gonna try to do something more coherent or am I gonna stick with what I did? And of course I was like, I'm sticking with what I did. Cause uh, I I mean there were times I wanted to give up on the stories, you know, where I just felt miserable inside them. And like nobody cares about your feelings when this happens. You're like, but see this two characters that I don't know how it's gonna end, you know, or whatever. And they're like, that seems like not a problem. But
0: one thing that I really love so much is that, um, you know, so many. I think also, particularly in debut collections, so many authors are very clearly um, concerned with honing their voice, you know, and finding their voice and claiming their voice and having that be like a signature and a singular. And that just doesn't happen here, you know. That there are so many voices. Like, there's literally the old auntie who's talking to you, saying, mm-hmm. "Okay." Watch my hands, and you know. Then there's a fifth grader who's like, "Why is my father getting arrested?" And you know, and this is in the context of the fish wars. Like, why is my father getting arrested? And why are things so tense around my house? Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, there are young people and old people. There's this ancient voice that's happening in the Antigone, and there are so many voices. But there's a real sensibility. There's a very strong, like, like a very like like poetic was a word I used before, but it's it's very. Um, it's very brave, it doesn't pull any punches, it's very, very funny. It's, oh, thank you, you know, for saying that. It's, it's really <laughs> hilarious. It's, um, it, they're people that you want to talk to and, and be talked to, uh, you know, to talk with. Um, every one of them, even though they're so different. So it isn't like Beth's voice, my voice. It's something much more powerful than that, which is why I love how it starts with a feast, you know? Yeah. You know? Oh, thank you. Um, I
2: had two questions about Antigone. Actually, I found the rhythms of Antigone so stunning, and I just wondered how that evolved. Um, and then secondly, I wondered about the experience of having it performed by students and whether the piece shifted um, after it was performed. What was it like for you to to go through that process? Oh, thank you. Um, so I really... When I sat, when I started working on Antigone, um, you know, my puzzle was like, well, what would a Nesper's version of Antigone look like, um, and what, how does a colonial context change the ethical dilemmas at the core of that piece? Actually, that second question didn't come until after I finished the play. Then I was like, oh, I see why these characters are like that. It's because. And why the problems are like this is because of this colonial structure, makes the clear path toward a moral voice um, impossible. Actually, um, well, actually, it's just the moral center of the play shifts into the chorus away from Antigone. Um, so the way I wrote it was I. So Antigone has been rewritten thousands of times, and so I never looked at anybody else's adaptation. I just got. I went to the bookstore and bought a copy of the Oxford, you know, Antigone. I read all the commentaries in that section and wrote myself notes. And I would just read it and say, and I listened to what the commentator said about what the the original Greek did. Again, having faith in the original form because I can't read Greek, but I trusted the translator saying, okay, there were, there's all this wordplay in the original and all these different kinds of things. And so I tried to. Uh, Use those as gui- guiding principles for how I was going to lay things out, and I, so if you know like federal Indian law, you will see tons of puns uh, working through the piece all the way through. Uh, law is just another language, actually, yeah. that appears in the the text, and so there were there were some of these guiding principles that helped shape what, and so that that commitment to trying to have lots of wordplay and turning on the phrases a lot, I think really encouraged me to have that sort of more poetic thing. And also just the influence of reading the original and that the original or the English translation that I was working with was very poetic. And so I was like, okay, this is what this section is doing. And I could make it work like this. Um, And then also I wrote big sections of the play inside of the National Museum of the American Indian. And so I was also in these. I think being in the space of the museum and writing with the Nez Perce war shirts and the, the native beings that were with me and the ancestral spirits that were with me as I was writing, I think it gave some power to mm-hmm. the way those worked out. And one of the things I really wanted to do was show a change in the rhythmic structure between the auntie stories that were coming because those were all stories that I translated out of the Nez and then had to keep shaving them down into these smaller things, so now I'm like, it's not, but, so I wanted to show that they were coming out of different language um, homes while still trying to carry that in English. So I think that's how that kind of worked together. So again, I was just typing by myself. I, when I wrote the play, and I, you know, people, it, I guess my publisher had this big debate, but do we call this collection stories? You know, because I always just thought of the play as another story. Here's another story. And actually, it's a play, it turns out. Um, and I didn't really realize that until you know, meeting with my very generous colleague in classics, TDPS um, Mark Griffith. Um, you know, I showed it to him, and I'm like, as a Sophocles scholar, does this you know, <laughs> make sense as, a, uh, as an interpretation? And um, he was very generous, and he's like, I think we should try to stage this. And so working with him, and then we did this reading and in, inside of the Hearst was a, which is a huge set of yeah. ethical questions and decisions we had to make. Um, and the Hearst was very welcoming to us, and that turned out to be a really like incredible experience. Um, and so then actually hearing people read it um, and seeing like, oh, there are all these things about a play that are not actually in this text, like what the lighting can do, and like there are all these other dimensions, and I did some rewriting at that time that it became like a speaking thing, or some of the lines, I'm like, oh, that's not sayable, you know, like, it looks nice on the page, but it's not as good on the ear, or someone needs to be moving here, (laughs) you know, so there are all these questions, that I'm really, so it become, so having its own life as a play, I think, has been really fantastic, and actually was, I just found out a week or two ago that it, was selected for a playwright competition and it's going to be, I'm going to workshop it at the Autry in LA um, this summer and uh, it'll get two staged readings with professional directors and actors and tours, um so at great. the Autry in LA and then at the La Jolla Playhouse in um, San Diego. So it might actually like launch from there into like a real production and then it's like, oh, if it's a production there's gonna be some beadwork on the stage. Like there's gonna be some like gorgeous costuming going on and there's gonna be some cool effects. So I think now really thinking about like, oh, what could it be now? And those aunties are gonna be singing and not just telling stories and you know, so I think it, it's exciting to think about the, the play having its own life beyond. But another thing that happened, I'm sorry, just one more little thing is that aspect of students reading the play, Um, I had a colleague who taught it, it, a classic, a friend of mine teaches in classics at Harvard, and she um, taught it to her class, and her class went to the Peabody and read the play in the Peabody. And um, the fact that the play can be this thing that will employ Native actors that will give students a way into spaces and a way to pose ethical questions from inside of those spaces and to like, I am really happy with the legs that the play has in terms of student voices um, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, voice. Mm -hmm. And I I would say one more thing that the drum is a speaking role in the play. Um, The drum is character. And that's important too. I'm sorry, it's a long
0: answer. No, it's fascinating. (laughs) It really is. Just the insight that Antigone is a Native American play. I mean, everyone knows it's a play about morality and law, but it's a play about remains. Mm -hmm. And and it's and it's a spiritual. I mean, as much as it's a kind of social play, it's a deeply spiritual play, and um, that profound insight. That this is about not only kind of ethics in a Western classical, you know, sense, but um, but it's about it's about spirit and how we live with the dead, is um, I think. Well, as I just said, a, a very profound insight into the play. And once that switch happens, Antigone is a Native American play. Mm, yeah,
1: thank you. So, so this is a this is just more of a kind of speculative question. So you talked about yourself in the context of. Plateau peoples, and in the context of Columbia River tribes, but there's also the question of your status as someone who's writing for a larger Native American audience mm-hmm. of people beyond those regions, mm-hmm. and yet your work seems your work seems to be very rooted, and yet there's a larger world out there, not only of non-Native American readers but of Native American readers but who are not from those spaces. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that works for you?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, most of my, I mean, indigenous people are extremely mobile and everybody has family members who are on the res, in urban centers, people are moving back and forth, living in all kinds of different kinds of, native communities and with multiple kinds of affiliations all the time. And so the piece that you referred to, Rootless, you know, that scene on the bus is in Oakland, you know, and the the woman has the roots with her. She's carrying her roots with her. And that's, I don't know, I guess that's the best way I could explain it. Like that's my experience of moving through the world um, and and interacting with other Indigenous people who are also carrying their roots with them and somehow. And being able to recognize and talk across that, and then there are all these moments of impasse, you know. And some of them, like with um, Wyndon, you know, the central character, the two central characters, uh, you know, they're from neighboring tribes. They have a, they have relatives in common. Um, they have so much in common. They are living compatible lives, both ur- in an urban setting and, and on their reservation setting, but she's heterosexual looking for an indian man he's gay there's a huge chasm between them and and you know part of what that story is about too is like how law makes us look at each other differently or not love each other as completely as we could because of status and blood quantum and all kinds of complicating factors so like urban or rural can be not as big of a distance as like some kind of legal concept that divides you from the person you love the most. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Indian Life. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley book chat and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.